I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. <laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back. Uh, so today we have a very special guest, Dr. Jane Ellis. Um, and I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to spoil the topic that we're that we're going to be talking about. But Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, you want me to just tell you a little bit about me? Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah, ahead, tell us tell us what, about what you, you do, what do you do, where you work, what makes okay. you tick. All right. Well, I'll be happy to tell you. So, uh, I am a Georgia native, grew up on the Georgia coast and then came to Atlanta, um, did my undergraduate and graduate work at Georgia Tech, then went to nice. Emory Med School and became a true emeroid, meaning I did medical school residency fellowship and now an attending. Uh, within the Emory system. I am a maternal fetal medicine specialist, which means I'm a high risk, uh, take care of high risk obstetric patients. And I'm based at Grady. Um, I am the medical director of our regional perinatal center um, there at Grady, which is um, the largest perinatal, regional perinatal center in the the state. Um, I am very privileged to be able to work with the maternal mortality review committee with DPH on quality improvement and initiatives such as the Georgia Perinatal Quality Collaborative, the levels of care legislation, just about anything high-risk OB, I like to think I have my fingers in it in some way, shape, or form. And since I do wear those uh, numerous hats, I do need to say that as we're talking tonight, um, even though I'm an Emory doc based at Grady and do a lot of work with DPH, I am not speaking for Emory or Grady or DPH or the Maternal Mortality Review Committee. I am speaking as an individual who's been involved with maternal mortality for quite a while now and had hoped that by this point in my career, we would have seen a big improvement in maternal mortality in Georgia. But unfortunately, that's not where we're finding ourselves today. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And we're going to, we're going to get into some of that, but tell us um, a little bit more about your background. Like when did you decide to uh, not only go into the uh, specialty you're in, but um, even more into the uh, maternal fetal mortality and high-risk pregnancy uh, world. And Dr. Ellis, before you get on that, um, I think you have uh, officially been a first. Not only are you our first OB expert and uh, f- uh, maternal fetal mortality, um, you are also the first Georgia Tech graduate, I'm pretty sure. We- we've had a lot of bulldogs on here. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm <laughs> glad I can break that streak. <laughs> so, you know, my mother used to tell me that all who wander are not lost. So that was an undergraduate <laughs> at Georgia Tech. Um, I did a lot of work with one of uh, NASA's chief life science scientists. He was taking a sabbatical. So my original plan career-wise was I did helicopter cockpit design and astronaut selection for NASA. What? It's been a lot of um, a stop. I spent a lot of time in the <laughs> simulator out at Lockheed and had actually signed a contract with one of the big helicopter manufacturers to work for them. So when I was finishing my undergraduate degree at Tech, one of my professors uh, was um, an animal behaviorist and he was working with the, the redesign of the Atlanta Zoo. Long story short, he asked me if I would spend a couple of days, um, and which turned into weeks, 
doing observations on chimpanzees and animals down at the old Atlanta Zoo. And after I did that, I came back, I tore up the contract with the helicopter company and decided to go to graduate school at Georgia Tech. Um, I still continued some of the work in like human factors and why people make errors and how design can help reduce errors. But I worked, I wound up working at the Yerkes Primate Center on several projects that involved fetal development. I was working with a maternal fetal medicine specialist there, um, along with a um, neurobehaviorist who was interested in cocaine exposure. You guys are too young to remember this, but back in the 80s, there was a big uh, cocaine epidemic, I guess, in Atlanta, where a lot of moms were using cocaine, and it impacted their uh, babies, or so it was thought. And uh, this, this maternal fetal medicine doc I was working with had a grant to look at um, prenatal exposure to cocaine and its developmental effects. So after we got that grant and got really a good way into this project, she left to go do something else. So I was kind of the person that had to figure out how to do amnios on monkeys and and continue this project. And that's what got uh, sparked my interest in, obstet in OBGYN and medical school. So I left the primate center and, uh, not too long after I finished graduate school at Georgia Tech and then went to medical school and uh, found that I really liked OBGYN. There's a cat coming, so sorry. Um, <laughs> just passing through. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, once I had some experience in medical school with the OB coursework and then on the wards, I just knew that's what I was going to do. I, I feel very privileged to have spent my whole career at Grady because it's such a fascinating group of patients there's so much pathology there. There's so much need for people to take care of patients. It's just, it just felt like home from the get-go. And I'm so glad that I've been there for probably 20 years or so now. Wow. So, so let's, let's jump into that a little bit. And I think, um, you know, when we say the things like maternal fetal mortality or maternal mortality, fetal mortality, you know, I think people just based on the words can understand that a little bit, but mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about kind of what is the definition, you know, we can get into what is the, uh, the kind of the scope of the problem and, and some of the things that you're, that you're trying to do, but how do you kind of define those two um, topics? Okay. Well, let's, we'll focus on maternal mortality since that's what my expertise is in primarily. Um, and there, there are two ways that maternal mortality is looked at. One is to talk about uh, a, a maternal death being pregnancy related. What that means is that she died from something that was directly due to the pregnancy or its management. For example, a postpartum hemorrhage or a preeclamptic seizure. If that patient had not been pregnant, she would not have had a postpartum hemorrhage. She would not have had a preeclamptic seizure. She would not have died. So her death is considered a pregnancy-related uh, mortality. A pregnancy-associated death is a death that simply happens whether or not a woman is pregnant. If she's if she's killed in a traffic accident, if she dies in a house fire and just happens to be pregnant, the pregnancy did not have any impact on that death. So that's considered a pregnancy associated death. When you talk about maternal deaths in general, though, usually those two categories of deaths are being lumped together or grouped together. So you're talking about really a total maternal mortality. Okay. 
And and on that same coin, um, when we talk about maternal fetal mortality, what what would be the definition of fetal mortality at that point? Yeah, that would be what we would call an intrauterine fetal demise, where the fetus dies prior to being delivered. Um, sometimes it may be something related just to the fetus, or it could be something that related is related to mom. Mom may be doing well, say she has severe hypertension and the fetus does not survive that. Or, you know, mom has a, a massive hemorrhage, say due to placental abruption before delivery and baby may die and pass away from that. So we would consider that a fetal uh, demise or fetal mortality, meaning that the baby dies prior to the time it's born or delivered. So in addition to, um, you know, some of the devastation that happens when a, when a mom um, dies or um, a, a fetus dies, what is the importance of measuring this? Does this, ha- does this measurement have further implications on overall health care or disparities of care? What, what, what's the importance of measuring this outside of the individual? Well, you know, it's certainly a huge issue for society in general and, Maternal health and maternal well-being is often referred to as the canary for general health care, meaning that if you have a high maternal mortality or poor outcomes for your moms and babies, that is indicative of a lot of problems within your health care system or within your uh, societal system. Okay, so you, you talked a little bit about, and I want to I want to talk in a little bit more um more on the pre-hospital side in just a few minutes on some of the direct causes and and, uh, and indirect causes. But um, can you just start with some of the statistics? I mean, I think the, uh, you know, we we have, uh, you know, somewhat of an understanding that, hey, we are, you know, the United States specifically and where we are in the state of Georgia, fantastic health care, um, low death rates in a lot of different areas. Can you go through just some of um, the the demographics and some of the statistics uh, worldwide um, and then also here in the United States and in Georgia? Uh, yes. Um, worldwide, of course, uh, we have a pretty high maternal mortality ratio, which is defined as the number of pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 live births. So when you talk about maternal mortality in a state or a country, you're talking about uh, the, you're looking at the maternal mortality ratio as a gauge of how that country or state is doing. Worldwide, as you might expect, many of the African countries have very high maternal mortality rates. Sierra Leone, I believe, has the highest um, in the world, and it's due to you know, just substandard conditions for delivery, lack of trained providers, lack of medications, and so forth. And then when you get to, and I'm going to try to reach over here and pull up some figures, but as you get, of course, to um, our, the United States, the United States has the worst maternal mortality ratio of the developed countries. Um, and I'm going to try to find some numbers in just a second because I went ahead and pulled some for us. And of course, now the cat just knocked everything off. Um, That's what they do. They do, and they do it well and with style. She's just sitting here looking at me like, huh? So in between 1999 and 2019 for the U.S., in 1999, the maternal mortality ratio was 12.7. 
Okay. I believe CDC, and I don't quite know how to phrase this. It's not an ideal, but a goal for maternal mortality. I believe CDC should say it be around 10.7 or 12.7. So back in 1999, uh, we were sort of at that in the U.S., Today, the maternal mortality rate, or in 2019, the maternal mortality ratio in the U.S. is 32.2. So that's oh a tremendous gosh. increase. Oh, my goodness. In, uh, <laughs> and then if you look for black women, it's in 1999, it was 26.7. In 2019, 55.4. And then Africa, uh, then um, for um, American Indians and Alaska Natives, it was 14.5 in 1999, and in 2019 was 49.2. So, as you may suspect, the United States does in fact have the worst maternal mortality in the of the developed countries, and it is increasing. Most other countries are decreasing their maternal mortality ratio, but that is not proven true so far um, in the U.S. Yeah, so I think I saw some numbers. Maybe you have it there in front of you. So if the U.S. you said in in um, in in um, what nineteen ninety nine twenty nineteen is thirty in twenty nineteen it was thirty two point two. And uh, then what was the closest other developed country? Oh, I have that in a map. Hold on, let me find that while we're talking. Um, that's this absolutely so blows my mind. But then you also said, though, that most countries are decreasing. Were they decreasing from the 1999 numbers? Yes. Uh-huh. And ours are doubling has, and tripling. The U.S. has shown a steady increase and uh, um, while other countries are decreasing it. OK, so the U.S., these are some old, older numbers. This was in 2017. The uh, U.S. maternal mortality ratio was 23.8. New Zealand had the best at 1.7. Wow. Okay. wow. France is, was behind us. Now, we were 23.8. France was 8.7. They had. The they were the next closest worst. to us? That's correct. Okay. Oh so it, there's, a, there's a huge disparity. And you see, if you look at the numbers here in Georgia, and, you know, this having this um, podcast today is so timely because Yesterday in the Atlanta paper, I don't know if you saw the headline, uh, one of the headlines in the paper that says death rate soars for new mothers um, in Georgia. Al Jazeera just published an article on the U.S.'s uh, very poor maternal mortality. The Department of Public Health released a fact sheet, if I can find that at the moment, on some recent numbers for us here. And then in uh, JAMA this past Monday, the Journal of the American Medical Association, there was a publication um, that came out of Brigham and Women's, I think, in Boston, where they went through and looked at each state. I have not read the article yet and looked at the, um, you know, the implications and the numbers for each state. And I think Georgia was about seventh worst in maternal mortality on their list. Um Traditionally, Georgia's been either 50th or 49th in the country in maternal mortality, um, but we have improved. And at least based on this article from uh, in JAMA on Monday, we're now the seventh worst in the nation. The, the numbers from uh, DPH that came out on Monday, 
this says that for non-Hispanic uh, Blacks, the maternal ratio, mortality ratio for Georgia from the period 2018 to 2020 was 48.6. For whites, non-Hispanic whites, it was 22.7. And the point there is we're still high, even for our uh, our non-Hispanic white moms, but there's a huge disparity. 48.6 for our black moms versus 22.7 for whites. 68% of deaths in Georgia were Medicaid patients. 32% were other forms of insurance. And maybe you don't want to hear this yet, but I think one of the more concerning findings from the maternal mortality uh, sheet from DPH is it said all pregnancy related deaths related to hemorrhage, maternal health conditions, cardiovascular diseases, preeclampsia and eclampsia were determined by the maternal mortality review committee to be preventable. 83% of deaths due to embolism were also uh, considered to be preventable. To me, that's a very frightening finding. That is, that is, yeah, and and I'd like to I'd like to get into that, but can we go back to, um, kind of the uh, well, the, the direct causes? What you you know, you've mentioned hemorrhage, you've mentioned um, uh, eclampsia. What are what are kind of the ones you know, especially in kind of the emergency medicine realm or the pre-hospital realm? What are the ones that are the more common um, that happen acutely like that? You will probably see um, hemorrhage, hypertensive emergencies, uh, cardiovascular diseases like MIs, aortic dissections, um, things like that, and cardiomyopathies, um, and uh, mental health conditions that may lead to suicide. Mental health conditions are also very concerning in Georgia, and but it can be hard to determine for say for suicide for example did she commit suicide because of the pregnancy or was there some other reason that can often be hard to tease out because we of course can't talk to the the individual but um suicides are increasing in georgia um especially among postpartum women so that is um something that should always be on a provider's mind as they address, uh, you know, as they arrive at a scene for you know, a medical emergency or a trauma. Let me go back to the hemorrhage. Can you kind of go through some of the things that cause the hemorrhage? I mean, I think, you know, some of the obvious ones are an abruption, mm -hmm. but what are some of the other things that can cause massive hemorrhage? Yeah, we, we always teach our residents the ABCs, which is uterine atony, which would probably occur mm -hmm. if you're dealing with a postpartum woman. And let me just put this little plug in. Uh, when respond first responders are first assessing a woman, it is very important to ask her, are you pregnant or have you been pregnant within the past year? Because some of the conditions that lead to uh, maternal death, such as cardiomyopathies, may you know not present till after delivery, and then they show up and are still present months afterwards and causing problems. Okay, so always ask a patient: Have you recently been pregnant, or are you pregnant now? So, in terms of hemorrhage, uterine atony. I mean, a, a postpartum hemorrhage you can have a delayed hemorrhage that may occur any time from the time she's discharged from the hospital till she, about 12 weeks after delivery. So postpartum hemorrhage are due to uterine atony. Um, for the person, for the patient who is still pregnant, 
One thing that's becoming more and more common and that are causing bleeding are conditions uh, referred to as uh, placenta previa, which is where the placenta covers the cervical os. These patients are not candidates for vaginal delivery, of course, because as the baby comes through the birth canal and tears the placenta, you have a massive hemorrhage. So any labor can cause a hemorrhage if the patient uh, has a placenta previa. Another thing we're seeing a big increase in are uh, is the number of um, what we call placental accreta spectrum patients. Do you know what a placenta accreta is? Nope. That's that's where the placenta grows too firmly into the uterus. And it usually happens in patients who have a scarred uterus from prior C-sections. Um, if these patients start to bleed, like if they start to have labor and they have an, a placenta accreta, then you can expect a massive hemorrhage. And typically the treatment for a um, placenta accreta is a cesarean hysterectomy. So um, you are seeing more, about first responders are starting to see more and more um, placenta accretas because of the huge increase in the number of C-sections in this country. And we're also seeing more and more placenta previas, which can cause uh, bleeding too. And of course, you have to think of things like trauma. Um, and uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, placental abruption, and they can cause massive hemorrhages. Earlier in pregnancy, a miscarriage an ectopic pregnancy can cause uh, a massive amount of bleeding. And for a mom who's had prior C-sections and may be laboring, a uterine rupture is another thing that is can be devastating and be associated with a massive amount of bleeding. And now what about, so we, we're talking about direct causes there with, you know, hypertension and hemorrhage and things of that nature. What are some examples of some indirect causes per se? Oh, things like um, a mom who has cancer, you mean in terms of maternal deaths? Yes, ma'am. Uh -huh. It would be a th things like uh, moms having cancer, say breast cancer, which is becoming fairly common in younger women of reproductive age. That woman may delay treatment or not want to terminate a pregnancy because uh, she wants you know do everything she can to have the baby. And sometimes that doesn't work out. So her death would be due to the cancer, but not directly from, uh, you know, anything that has to do with the baby or the treatment of the baby. Um, some other indirect, indirect causes, and that's kind of an, it's interesting that you say that because we used to use the terminology of um, direct and indirect deaths where direct deaths were pregnancy related deaths. And then your indirect were your pregnancy associated deaths. So things like trauma, suicides, um, you know, other diseases, colon cancer, things like this that would cause uh, death without it actually being related to the pregnancy. What about pre-existing conditions? How how concerned or what is there an increase in anything with um, diabetes, HIV, oh, things like that? Absolutely. Especially um, more and more moms have underlying um, you know, pre-existing medical conditions particularly obesity, diabetes, hypertension. We, we see at Grady, we see a lot of lupus and sickle cell patients. And though all of those medical conditions really put that mom at increased risk for having a poor outcome uh, during the pregnancy, especially since many of these moms 
aren't getting good care for those conditions when they're not pregnant. And if you think about it, a lot of women only access the healthcare system during their pregnancies and in the postpartum period. More and more moms are advanced maternal age now, over the age of 35. More and more moms are using assisted reproductive technologies for pregnancy. All of those things come with a huge risk um, of increased poor outcomes for those moms. It just makes management of the pregnancy a little more difficult if they have HIV or if they have diabetes or if they're obese. And and now for the uh, again for the medics and EMTs and in, in the uh, pre-hospital world, when you talk about an increased risk, you're talking about an increased risk for acute death, not a long-term uh, chronic condition. That's yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So I want to go back to the, to uh, the treatment since we're kind of, we're, we're kind of right here. Um, when we go back to uh, like um, hemorrhage, two, two questions really. But uh, the first one, when we talk about things like volume replacement or mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's um, a big push, there's some uh, pilot projects going on right now um, across the country, really uh, with uh, blood uh transfusions mm-hmm. in the field mm-hmm. um what kind of things let's say there is a there is a uh an option to give blood maybe we're in a rural area or maybe we're in an area that's going to have a little bit longer transport time where blood products are being used so a couple of questions with that does it matter the type of blood product um two does it matter do we do we change the volume of replacement um with uh with a mother who has a viable fetus uh, versus um, uh, a mother that is postpartum? Uh, with respect to the type of blood, the, of course, the correct answer is always you want to use type-specific blood where possible. And, you know, that's not going to happen in the field. You're not going to know what her blood type is. I don't know what type of blood you would have. I would assume maybe it's O-negative blood. Correct. If she is hemorrhaging, you need to do what you would normally do for any patient in that circumstance. So whatever blood you have available, which is most likely going to be O negative, uh, that's what you should give the patient. And But as you're calling to, for the facility where you're taking that patient, you want to make sure they're aware of that so they can get type-specific blood ready when they have all the right, uh, you know, right things in place. Normally, we would, you know, we we wouldn't want to give unmatched blood to a pregnant patient because of concerns about um, alloimmunization in terms of blood type down the road for subsequent pregnancies. But at this point in time, you've got to do what you would do for any other patient, which would be give this patient uh, the blood that you have available. And, and then, on, go ahead. Go I'm ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, and then. In respect to, with respect to the volume of blood, um, it's pretty hard to calculate. So, you know, if you have a unit, two units, I would get those going. Uh, I don't know what y'all are planning on carrying on your trucks, but um, again, you probably want to start your transfusion and then monitor her vital signs to see how uh, she's responding. So whether she's pregnant or postpartum, give what you have available. What's what's the potential amount of volume? You know, sometimes when it, you know when it comes to trauma, you know, we we talk about how much uh, you know blood the abdominal cavity can can hold if you have uh, you know a lacerated liver or spleen or femur or something like that. What is the potential blood loss that you can get um, from one of these types of hemorrhages? 
you know, I don't know how to quantify that, but it can, it can be absolutely massive. And remember, uh, there are a lot of physiologic changes that go along with pregnancy that are important for first responders to be aware of. And one is that mom has a um, increased blood volume uh, throughout the pregnancy. So she is capable of losing more blood before she starts to, to show signs of shock. And one thing you don't want to do is get behind in terms of your volume replacement. You just assume that the, the blood loss is, ma is massive. I mean, you're not going to have any way to really quantify it until you get an ultrasound or until you can, you know, actually assess how much blood she's lost if she's bleeding externally. Um, but, you know, give what you got. That's what I would say. So you mentioned, um, you know, if you're giving blood or you're giving volume replacement and you want to um, let the destination or the facility know um, what's going on, um, tell us a little bit about what what should be some of the thought process for destination for these patients? You know, if we th as we as we think about um, urban versus suburban versus rural versus, you know, ultra rural, you know, places around the country where, um, you know, you could be an hour by helicopter. Um, what are some of the decisions or some of the thought process um, paramedics should have on where some of these patients should be going in this acute phase? Oh, you know, that is an excellent question and one that is so hard to answer because we know one thing that really improves maternal and fetal outcomes is to be transported to an ap appropriate facility. Now, keep in mind in Georgia that half of our 159 counties have no OB services of any type. Okay? Wow. Over the past, I think, 10 years, 38 labor and delivery units have closed in Georgia. Most of those are in rural areas. Okay, So finding the, finding the appropriate place for a pregnant patient who is having a massive hemorrhage I, I, all I can say is that that's going to be difficult. There are two things in place that m may help, but again, this is a lot of transport time involved. Georgia has a regionalized system of maternal uh, health care, which means there are six regional perinatal centers in the state, which are your highest levels of care. Um, Grady is the perinatal center for the 40-county North Georgia area. So, of course, a trauma or uh, a severe medical emergency, a place like Grady would be the best place to go. But another thing that may help um, is Georgia has also passed legislation that's called the Maternal Levels of Care Legislation. This got this was passed just before COVID hit, so we're lagging behind on this. But what it is it is designed to do is have each hospital that has a labor and delivery unit say what they're capable of test of taking care of, and then having the state verify that. Level one is the lowest level of care. Level four is the highest. So a facility will say, okay, we think we're a level two. The, the state comes in, performs the audit, and then agrees or disagrees. And all of that is posted, will be posted on a website so that anyone can look that up to know if hospital, you know, the hospital in Cuthbert, Georgia, can take care of a major trauma. Um, those are the things that can can help. But the reality of the situation is when a uh, a mom is in trouble in a rural area, 
there may not be a place to go that's most appropriate for her. So the goal would be to get her where she can be stabilized and then transported to a higher level of care. And we've seen, you know, in the Maternal Mortality Review Committee, even by helicopter, sometimes that just, you know, that's not fast enough for a mom that's really in trouble, particularly if she is far away from an appropriate center. So, and I've heard EMS calling in to Grady. You guys really do a good job at giving the most accurate information that you can. And that is so important to make sure that the OB providers in that hospital are aware that the patient is pregnant. Because one thing we hate to do is the patient's, you know, been there for 35 or 40 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever. And then we, someone realizes she's pregnant and then it takes OB a while to get down. So letting the uh, receiving facility know as soon as you can that the patient is pregnant and how pregnant you suspect she is, is going to be really helpful in terms of managing that patient. Is there any, so looking at this, you know, interdisciplinary approach, almost, if you look at trauma, there are certain areas of the United States that are doing pretty well. Same thing with car, emergency cardiology. Is there a focus or a uh, lighthouse, so to speak, within the United States who is doing well um, and that they are, you know, doing these things that you're talking about plus some? Mm, I, not that I'm specifically aware of, but I know I have a colleague who's at up at Hopkins and they have a big critical care OB fellowship. <clears throat> and so they're train they're training three to four MFMs per year on management of trauma and you know critical care, uh, medical emergencies and so forth. So probably your big centers in California, for example. And by the way, California has the lowest maternal mortality ratio in the country. I think they're about 9.7, followed by Massachusetts. Wow. All of the uh Bad players are, of course, across the South, uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana. Uh, but most of the like innovations and things like that are coming out of California. Um, and then uh, Johns Hopkins does have a program, uh, as I understand it, that's looking to train MFMs in more critical care. And we, you know, at Grady, we have a really good working relationship with the trauma service. Uh, they are hands down phenomenal when there's a pregnant patient that comes in. You know, we see a lot of patients with gunshot wounds um, and the the trauma team at Grady is just phenomenal in getting those patients taken care and getting us down there to do what we have to do. Yeah, it's another interesting relationship because typically in ED, when it comes to a uh, pregnant person, they don't want anything to do with them. <laughs> no, you have right. your own entrance, you have your own everything, just, uh, you know, go over there and take care of them. have no business being in the emergency department. Keep on well, rolling. I, yeah, I, I agree. And I always tell the residents one place I hate to go when I'm on call is down to the ED, but I've gotten used to that. And uh, I'm just, I'm fortunate that our trauma service at Grady is so, uh, willing to, you know, be sort of a multidisciplinary team when we when we need to. I mean, we've done quite a few sections, perimortem sections down in the ED, and you know, they're 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 there to help us. They're they've got it down pat. Whatever protocol they follow when that patient comes in, by the time we actually get down there, which is usually just before the patient comes in, they've got everything laid out and we're ready to go. Big kudos. Yeah. And I think like with anything else, this is going to end up taking a team. I mean, you mentioned um, we, we, we uh, 
not necessarily going to focus on this, but the uh, cardiovascular care, you know, there's entire mm-hmm. subspecialties now um, that are kind of popping up um, for um, maternal cardiovascular care uh, for things, uh, SCAD and aortic dissections and PEs mm-hmm. and things like that, that, um, you know, it's going to end up taking a team. But I want to kind of move now more um, a little bit into uh, the fetal mortality rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, obviously, depending on uh, the length of gestation and the viability of things, um, w- what are what are some of the causes of fetal mortality? Oh, usually, uh direct abdominal trauma, for example, uh, if mom's, you know, if mom's in an MVA, for example, or if there's a trauma in the form of a gunshot wound to the abdomen, uh, those are probably, at least in my experience at Grady, are the two leading uh, causes of fetal death if the mom survives. And, and, you know, of course, if mom doesn't survive, the unless the baby can be delivered within just about a seven minute period or so, the baby is also not likely uh, to survive. Massive hemorrhages, uh, um, MVAs, gunshot wounds. Um, I've seen a couple of patients who experienced severe burns and the fetus did not survive those either. What about situations that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. And I have to say domestic violence too, which usually- Uh, results in direct abdominal trauma. And interestingly, uh, as a woman gets more pregnant, if she's in an abusive relationship, she is more likely to be abused the more pregnant she is. And the acts of abuse typically involve the breast and the abdomen during pregnancy. So that's a big player in terms of fetal death. Wow. Um, now what about in reference to communicable diseases and, uh, sepsis are those, do those play any type of leading role in fetal mortality at all? Uh, not so much in fetal mortality, but sepsis is a, a leading cause of maternal mortality. And of course we have our protocols in place so that we try to get ahead of a patient that we suspect is becoming uh, septic. But yes, if mom doesn't survive the sepsis, then there's a good chance that that baby will not survive either. And, you know, if we deliver a baby uh, for maternal indication, if that baby is less than 23 weeks pregnant uh, of gestation, that baby is unlikely to survive. Um, and babies do get infections themselves. Um, syphilis is coming back as a huge infection uh, that that crosses a placenta and can infect the baby, although it typically doesn't cause fetal death. But if mom has chorioamnionitis, which is an infection of the contents of the uterus, if that is not treated promptly, that can result in uh, fetal death. So I want to kind of transit. I mean, there's such a great overview of um, some of the things um, that can happen, what we need to be looking out for. But as as some of the work that you have done, um, I want to kind of talk a little bit about, you know, epidemiologically. Is that a word? <laughs> you um, nailed it. Make it one. Why? <laughs> I don't know how that is. It's the longest word I've ever said in my life. Um. <laughs> Looking at some of this stuff, you know, I'm just, you know, you're you're mentioning some of these numbers, and you know, I, I'm I would have never guessed that. I mean, I'm just absolutely blown away by some of that stuff. Before we get into some of the disparities of uh, race and socioeconomics, 
What about just as a healthcare system? You know, we um, we talk about some um, birth defects and, and stuff in third world countries or underdeveloped countries where uh, lack of prenatal care and that kind of uh, those kind of issues happen. Here in the U.S., we have fairly good or fairly um, uh, good access to prenatal care. Is this all um, a result of lack of prenatal care? Has that helped? Does that really matter or does it not uh, really affect the things that uh, you that you're finding? Well, you know, I would say we like to think we have a great health care system, but there are a lot of places where I don't think we're as good as we think we are and we truly need to improve. And one of those, of course, is in lack of access to care. Here in Georgia, like I said, half of our counties have no obstetric care whatsoever. We have what we call, uh, well, I use the word huge, but they're obstetric deserts. There's so many places across Georgia where a mom can't get care either during pregnancy or, you know, when she's not pregnant. There are no providers. There's She doesn't have insurance. Um, she can't get to the providers. If if she has a provider, she's got six kids. There's no car. They won't fit in the car. Nobody can watch them. She can't go to her appointments. Um, all of those are types or things that really play into some of the poor outcomes we see here in Georgia. One thing that uh, the Maternal Mortality Review Committee really advocated for, and it has no enforcement power. We review cases and we make uh, recommendations is that Medicaid be extended to the to one year postpartum. Traditionally, it's been six weeks. Then we got it extended to six months, and now it's been uh, extended for a full year. We just need to make sure patients are aware of that. I'm trying to tell my patients every day, every patient I see, look after your delivery. You're going to have Medicaid for a year, so you make sure that you go to your appointments and that works fine here in Atlanta, but in other areas, they're not providers to see those patients. Um, you know, especially in the areas of like mental health and cardiology, um, it's it, providers in the rural areas, OB providers have told us based on a survey we did through a group I work with that they typically don't screen for things like postpartum depression when their patients come back because they say, if we find it, we're not comfortable treating it. And there are no providers in my area that can refer uh, that we can refer those patients to. So we don't wow. ask because we're not going to be able to do anything about it. So lack of providers, lack of access to getting to those providers in the past, lack of um, insurance. And also one thing I think really needs to be stressed here in Georgia is that there needs to be a big push toward patient and provider as well as family education. Um, we see from providers time and time again, a patient has presented say to the ED multiple times when she's immediately postpartum with complaints of chest pain or shortness of breath. Those symptoms overlap with those of a routine pregnancy and can be hard to, to tease out. The patients, you know, said, okay, you just had a baby. No wonder you're tired. She goes home and dies of cardiomyopathy, okay? You know, we we send patients home on blood pressure medicines with the instructions to take them. Then they decide we don't want to take them. They're probably not, not that important. My mother said I didn't really need to do this. So educating patients and families on instructions we give them 
as well as, uh, you know, warning signs to come back for and making sure providers, especially in more rural areas who may not see as many pregnant patients, making sure they understand that a pregnant patient's complaint of chest pain might be more concerning than someone who's not pregnant and comes in complaining of chest pain. So I think the lack of access to care and lack of education uh, have played a huge role in some of the out, un, undesirable outcomes that we're seeing in our patients. So one of the things I want to ask you specifically about, and one of the disparities, and you brought up um, uh, pa- patients, you said um, the it, it's non-Hispanic Black patients. Is that the that's that correct? Fifty percent, forty-eight point six percent. That's the maternal mortality ratio in Georgia. So tell us a little bit more about that. You know, recently in the news, um, you know, we have the Olympic athlete, uh, Tori Bowie. We've got, Mm -hmm. you know, Serena Williams, you know, that each had complications. You know, Tori Bowie passed away. Um, Certainly someone who could not be more of a model of fitness and health, Mm -hmm. um, access to, you know, likely access to care. What what is it about race that plays into this? Well, if we knew the answer to that question, we would have many problems solved. And it sounds like a cop-out, but unfortunately, we don't know why those racial disparities exist. Um, Is it, you know, due to pre-existing conditions? Is it due to lack of access to care? Is it due to racial, you know, implicit bias on the part of providers? We don't know. But yet, if you take a well-educated Black woman as we've seen recently with a, a few years back, maybe a woman from CDC who died um, in the postpartum period. She had made several presentations back to the hospital after her baby was born with complaints of chest pain. I think her blood pressure was high. Her family said she was not really listened to and she died. Okay. It's it's very frustrating that those that of course that any woman dies, but what we're seeing among black women is that it's not a it doesn't seem to be a function of socioeconomic situation, education, whatever. A well-educated black woman has a higher chance of dying during her pregnancy or in the postpartum period, based on recent statistics, than does a less educated poor woman uh who was uh, a non uh non-hispanic white woman and it's it's very puzzling we just don't know why black women are dying at such a higher rate with certainty we know a lot of factors that may come into play so how are these being addressed are there uh, um you know n- not just in georgia where we are but nationally are are um are there are there big registries uh, for this with comprehensive data that's being evaluated to try to address any of these specific areas? I think CDC is probably keeping the most uh, up to date and accurate registry. They have a pregnancy uh, surveillance system that has a phenomenal amount of data, all types of data. So I suspect that they are monitoring. Um, it, data on the racial disparities issue um, uh, very carefully. Also, I think as we are recognizing that uh, there's a mistrust of the healthcare system among many Black patients, 
many, many, you know, societies, many organizations are now having training courses uh, on things like implicit bias and racial bias and how that impacts healthcare. Um, and I think those have been, I know I've participated in quite a few of them. I'm always surprised at what I learn uh, about myself and about others uh, during those training courses. So there is a big push to recognize that this is a problem. And until we really recognize it, we don't know how to fix it. So a big push in making providers aware uh, that those disparities uh, exist. And, and you mentioned the providers. Who are the providers? I mean, is this just an OB? Um, you know, is this just a thing you've got to get to your OB residents so they can actually make a difference? Or is this more comprehensive in healthcare? I think this is more, compre more comprehensive in, in healthcare in general across all specialties and not just from physicians, but, you know, anybody that's involved in patient care where we're talking about nursing staff, our nurse practitioners, advanced practice nurses and so forth. So there's a big push to, um, you know, train people and make them aware of how these, um, these implicit biases may impact care. Um, and also, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, things like with the Maternal Mortality Committee, Review Committee and so forth, there's also been a big push to make those committees more diverse so that different perspectives, uh, say when we review a death, can be taken into account. Uh, the Georgia Maternal Mortality Review Committee is very multidisciplinary. There are about 45 members um, on that, and it includes physicians, as you would expect, different healthcare um, providers and so forth, but also representatives from groups like uh, the March of Dimes, uh, Black Mamas Matter, Black Lives Matter, and so forth, so that there's that, that whatever you want to call it, that sort of undertone or cultural thing that needs to be brought out that may in, uh, may in fact impact the way that care is provided to uh, women of different uh, ethnic and racial backgrounds. So Brandon, I explain um, or just kind of remind us and maybe Dr. Ellis for the first time on the community paramedic model. And then, um, Dr. Ellis, I'd like to kind of get your opinion on whether or not this type of uh, model at a local air, at a local level could impact something like this. Yeah. I mean, so essentially it's a combination of a mid-level provider and a paramedic, um, either on an ambulance or on, and typically they're not on an ambulance. They are actually in some form of SUV where they can fit, you know, several medications and diagnostic equipment. And uh, it's technically a pre-hospital situation, but or a pre-hospital setting, but truly it's preventative and compliant medicine. You know, making sure that patients are compliant with their medications post-discharge. Um, patients who frequently utilize the 911 system uh, get get um, a lot of interaction and a lot more care than what they would typically. Uh, because they are bringing the medicine to the patient versus the medicine, or excuse me, versus the patient going to the uh, medical system. So, you know, like Jason is saying, is that something that is a potential benefit? Oh, absolutely. Um, and we do have uh, what's called, at Grady, we call it the MIH or the Mobile Integrated Inter Health Unit. They yep, go that's, out that's and, the other name for it. Yeah, they go out and they check blood pressures and all this. 
all these things. And, you know, in, at least in the setting of a postpartum patient, they're checking her blood pressures, bleeding, um, different vital signs and so forth, and then reporting them back to their uh, providers. That's a great, that is a great model. And, you know, as we know that cardiac issues are the leading cause of maternal mortality, both nationally and in Georgia, there's a big push in Georgia, as you mentioned uh, earlier, on cardiac uh, care and how to roll that out and how to improve that in Georgia. So one thing a group of us have been thinking about trying to advocate for is for patients with cardiac issues, the pregnant patients with cardiac issues that can't get back to a cardiologist for follow-up. I mean, you do mobile mammograms, you do mobile CTs and so forth. Why not have a van that could go out and do EKGs or echoes that could be transmitted back to, uh, you know, a provider or cardiologist to read? It's a great idea because patients can't always come in like you want them to. And we know if they don't come in and pick up their medicines, they may die of their hypertension. But if they had gotten that medicine, that might not have happened. So I think that is a great model. And I would fully support uh, the use of that. So kind of as we uh, as we wrap this up, one of the things we always we typically like to ask um, our guests are, and I know we're kind of putting you on the spot. We did not prep you for this. Um, so if you got to take a minute to think about it, any success stories that you can that you can think of that, um, you know, maybe somebody got some education or some resources, uh, something was identified or the patient was uh, brought to, uh, you know, bypassed a couple hospitals to get to you. Um, and the outcome was different because of the decisions that the team made. Oh, absolutely. We, I think we see that a lot on a day-to-day basis when, um, you know, we've had patients who were receiving OB care in smaller towns and their doctors have referred them to us. And the sometimes there's a lot of complications that go through uh, along with getting those patients um, uh, seen at Grady, for example. Sometimes the patient just says, essentially, hell no, I'm not going to go through all this. I'm just going there. And the patient doesn't do all those things they're supposed to do to actually get to Grady, but they've said they've advocated for themselves and saying, I'm just coming in and here they, they come. So mm. that, so we see that fairly often too, but I think at a, like the state level for, let me give you two examples real quick of success stories. The fact that women now have their postpartum Medicaid extended for a year. That was a huge success. And it took, you know, really getting after the legislature to to do that. The second thing that has, I think, improved outcomes here um, in Georgia has been the um the legislature given uh, giving um rural hospitals money to do what we call the um AIM bundles. AIMS AIM stands for Alliance for Imp- Improvement and or Innovation in Maternity Care. Two areas where that was needed uh, is in the area of hypertension and in postpartum hemorrhage. So mm. all hospitals now have these evidence-based practice guidelines that they've been imp- that they've implemented to reduce mortality from postpartum hemorrhage and from uh, high blood pressure. It's been implemented and those two bundles have been implemented in both most hospitals across the state. And we've seen a good reduction in maternal uh, high blood pressure issues, as well as postpartum hemorrhage. So 
those are kind of two success stories, the extension of Medicaid and the rollout of the AIM bundles in Georgia. We are now trying to roll out the cardiac bundle, which is a little bit of a heavier lift because it's a much more complicated bundle. But at least in the areas of hypertension and, and uh, postpartum hemorrhage, I think we're starting to, to make some good progress. And I hope that continues. Excellent. One one last question. Um, um, and, you know, I think the easier, you know, we could probably spend a lot of time on it, but some of the places like California, um, Massachusetts, some of the places that you mentioned that are doing things well, mm-hmm. um, what what are they doing that that uh, can be used as a model around the rest of the country? Great question. Well, we yeah, and thank you for asking that. The cardiac care bundle that we're now implementing in Georgia is based primarily on the actions that California took to reduce their maternal mortality due to cardiac issues. It's a really complicated lift, but we're working with some of the providers there that led that initiative. We've got 11 hospitals in Georgia signed up to do these cardiac care um, scenarios or you know management plans that need to be in place. Um, so we've, we're modeling our behavior after that in, in California. And apparently Georgia is the only other state besides California to try to implement this bundle. So there are a lot of eyes on Georgia to see how successful we are. So we are working very hard and California has been, the people in California have just been a tremendous help in their interest in uh, helping us get this bundle up and running so that we can, you know, make sure that cardiac issues are being dealt with more appropriately and hopefully will not be the leading cause of maternal mortality in the near future. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Ellis, thank you so much for your time this evening. Um, and thank you for what you do. This is absolutely incredible. And it's, uh, you know, to me, it's, it's always impressive and remarkable when somebody looks at something that looks like losing odds and they say, it doesn't matter, we're going to make this better. Um, so I just want to thank you for doing that. I appreciate this opportunity because it's, you know, this is sort of a day-to-day thing for me, but as you guys sort of pointed out to me recently, or I think Jason, uh, you or someone else did, when you said, I didn't really realize that maternal mortality was a problem here in Georgia. It's a huge problem and we Mm. need to get that message out. If we don't get the message out, we're not going to fix it. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.